our text for today is from the scriptures, Romans 8, verses 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Advent has a lot of symbols, but the main labor of the season for Christians is waiting, both in celebrating that the world was waiting for the enfleshing, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we wait for his return. Some of you have noticed that I have some curmudgeonly uh, tendencies with respect to Christmas, and I want to encourage those of you that they are growing less and less for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them is, as I look around, my mind more quickly is reminded, why do we have most, not all, of the symbols? Some of the symbols are more about um, the season, like the weather season. But I look at the light, and I remember that the light came to dwell with us, and I'm encouraged. And as the world would ask us to take this as a season of consuming, we long for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us to wait. 
waiting neither sounds like nor neither sounds essential nor like a skill to us and yet for a christian waiting is actively doing life in this broken world like a follower of jesus it means continuing to worship it means continuing to grow in our care for and love of the neighbors he's put into our lives it means continuing to avoid the despair that would come if not for Jesus, even as we wait for him to come and remove death and disease. Romans 8 is uh, perhaps not an obvious text for Advent, and yet it references Jesus getting personally involved. It references the enfleshing, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It has been said that Romans is like the Himalayas in terms of the mountain ranges, and chapter 8 is like Mount Everest. I could come up with neither of those specific names in the first service. They were gracious to me. They shouted it out. That may happen in the service later, but I, I got it this time. And these are theologians attempting to wrestle with all scriptures God breathed. Every book of the Bible has profit for us in terms of understanding God and our role in the world as one who is his follower. And yet, the book of Romans has a lot to tell us about the provision we're given, specifically to chapter 8, the provision we're given in the waiting. How could we wait with the tumult and despair and disease and death around us? Among other reasons, but perhaps the most profound, is by the indwelling Holy Spirit. More specifically to Romans 8, we wait without condemnation. I'm entirely confident that one of the most important reasons that you're sitting here is to be reminded or to learn for the first time that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who have said, as a response to his pursuing love, I trust you, Jesus, there is no condemnation. And many of you have been Christians for a long time, and I'm so excited that you're not learning this, but you're being reminded by it. How else could we resist the temptations of the world but in reminders like that? How else could we resist our temptations to despair or to ignore or lash out at our loved ones, but to begin with the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul's going to talk about this a little bit more at the end of our text, but he's, he's describing the two positions for a number of reasons. One, it encourages us what we've been freed from, but two, he doesn't know everyone in Rome. In the end of Rome, he gives 23 people that he did know that probably multiple house churches were a little bit bigger than 23, so he knew a number of them, but not all of them. So for some who are considering either God-fearers, those that were interested in the Jewish religion but didn't grow up Jewish, or for Jewish Christians that are considering the claims of Christ in the Roman church, He's setting the two options available to every human. Lives of life, and that doesn't mean, that's not bios, like biology, that's not heart continues to beat, that's zoe, that's flourishing, or lives of death. Those are the options. He's mostly writing that to encourage the Christians. So I assume 
more than 51% of the people listening to this are followers of Christ, and it's supposed to encourage you that you have been set free. But for some, he's introducing them to that option, to that idea, to, to what faith means. And there's a hint, not nearly as much as in the book of Ephesians, but in verse 2, there's a hint of Exodus imagery because if you're familiar with the Exodus, that's when God rescued the entire nation of Israel from slavery, real, actual, physical slavery, brought them on eagles' wings, Moses writes in Exodus 19, into freedom because he loved them, created a new nation for them. Verse 2 gives some Exodus imagery because it's a true historical thing that happened that becomes a metaphor for us to understand what Christ did to a worse slavery that we're born into, which is slavery to sin and death. And he's reminding here, and then he's going to speak more in verses 3 and 4 about the law. Even though the law, just picture the Ten Commandments, though Paul means it broader than that. If we only have the law, and we actually believe the law teaches us how to treat one another, but we don't have grace and faith, what does the law become? Something that would cause us to despair or to harm others and probably harm ourselves by lashing ourselves internally with how much we cannot meet these commands. The law met by something, the law is good, but meeting the force of the curse after Adam and Eve sinned and then the flesh of every human being, the flesh is the part of you that has not yet been grown up into maturity in Christ. When those meet, it would lead us to despair. But the Spirit frees us from what? power and the penalty of sin. Do we still live in its presence? Yes. My back hurts. What about you? I'm 44. I'm relatively resigned because most of you who are older than me have told me to be resigned that it's going to always hurt. Okay? I know it doesn't have to always hurt. Those of you that are fitness people, I, I know. But it hurts now because the presence of sin has not been removed from the world and because of my habits and all that kind of stuff. And the Spirit frees us, though, from the ultimate penalty and from the power of the curse. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Not will, not maybe, has set you free. I don't feel that free. That's a great conversation to take up with the Lord in prayer. Because you are. And it's through Christ's work. Verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. What we celebrate with Advent, where we see everywhere mangers. One of the things that I love about the symbology of Advent is it's strong enough that the culture embraces parts of it. So for no good reason, we will see Christian imagery all over the world right now, whereas at Easter we see the Norse god of fertility celebrated everywhere. That's what Easter is, by the way. That's why we have the rabbits and the bunnies and all that. We still celebrate it because the resurrection is more important. At Christmas, more of the sim- symbology or the symbols, more of the symbols of it are profoundly Christian, and it's so encouraging. In verse 3, he's talking about what we celebrate at Advent, the, the Word becoming flesh. But, but the point of 
that Paul's making is broader than that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law is good, but the curse and the flesh that every man has, those followers of God are not full of flesh because they've been given a new heart. Those two things in combination are insurmountable by us. God pursued us through that combination of a good thing and a cursed thing and drew us to himself. Why? It's an overflow of his love. He didn't need us. He wasn't bored. He didn't... He did it as an overflow of his love because that's who he is. The Father and the Son and the Spirit overflow with love and therefore it is who he is to come after us in love, to make us right with God by sending his Son who then filled the righteous requirement of the law and then free us into a spirit-filled life where there is no condemnation. What does it mean that he's in the likeness of sinful flesh? It means he looked like a regular human. Multiple church councils wrestled with this question because it is essential that our um, understanding of Jesus be as informed as it can be about who he is and who he was. If he's not fully man, if he just sort of looked like a man, then in our worst moments, we are going to wonder, or even our mediocrely bad moments, we're going to wonder, can he sympathize? The scriptures teach us that he was indeed fully man and fully God. There was a teaching that was he just looked like a man. He was actually just spirit. That's heresy. Heresy is, te- is something that teaches... Re- um, <laughs> Heresy is a teaching that leads people away from the true Jesus. It's not error. It's not getting something wrong. It's teaching something that will convince people that Jesus is not who he says he is, which is both fully man. He can sympathize. He did experience temptation. He did experience great sorrow and emotion and yet was without sin. He was also fully God in our mediocrely bad moments or worse moments and we're praying to him if he's not fully God he can't do anything about it. Do you see the two sides of despair that good theology frees us from? Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In the New Testament, some of the most profound and powerful and life-giving language can seem counterintuitive to us. Walk is a really important word. Paul uses it often because it's not a sprint. It's full of a lot less mountaintop experiences than we might have thought when we came into it. And yet the opportunity is there for us to walk using Romans 6 language in the newness of life. Humans are using Romans 8 language to set our minds on the spirit. To do all that is in front of us as human beings, as worshipers of God, living in the neighborhood of God, living in the neighborhoods we live in, with the families that we have, with the church that we have, to walk as becomes a follower of Christ. 
Therefore, we set our minds. And listen to verses 5 through 8. Again, I know you heard them carefully. Many of you have studied this passage many times in your life. Listen to it again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Is that a command? Nope. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is a command that's going to go with this. We'll look at it next week. It's verses 12 and 13. But we've got to notice this, friends, because it's so freeing. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Theologians call this the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. I like to call them the promises of the commands because the pro- excuse me the promises and then the subsequent commands because most of us don't use language of indicative and imperative but perhaps it's good for us to learn some theological language God's promises and even provision always come before his commands which are even more often than commands descriptions of the life that becomes a follower of Christ which doesn't mean don't work to set your minds on the Holy Spirit, but it does mean notice how God describes this as what naturally follows someone who has set their, who has been freed by the Spirit as opposed to someone who is still enslaved to this world. And there are but two options. Paul explains it many, many, many different ways, but there are two options. There is life, flourish here, or there's death. I like horror movies. I know most of you could uh, predict that segue. The reason that I like horror movies is because I think they're interesting. I snap when I'm scared, when I'm startled, which my wife doesn't watch the horror movies with me. If she hears me snapping, she thinks it's pretty funny. The reason horror movies don't scare me is, there are a bunch of reasons, but one of them is what does scare me is how capable we are of harming one another. I watched a movie about five years ago called Whiplash. And Whiplash is the story of two sociopaths and how much they're able to hurt one another, believing that if they can achieve a certain level of musical perfection, it's worth it. That's a life of death. Even with great beauty mixed in, the music's great, the, the dialogue in the movie's terrific, the cinema, it's an incredible movie. But it's terrifying. And in some ways, a depiction of the life of death that's available to every human even pursuing something beautiful, objectively beautiful, in this case, jazz. But for the Christian, a life of life is offered. And for the one considering, that's the offer. It's to set our minds. And don't miss this. This is the offer of the gospel of Jesus. Paul describes both lives because he didn't know everyone in the Roman church and perhaps he was excitedly anticipating that there'd be some God-fearers or some Romans or some Jews who were all, any one of those groups, considering the offer of faith in Jesus Christ. The offer is this, life and peace. Some of you are like, I've been a Christian 22 years. I don't feel at peace. I say this all the time because I hope it helps. I hope you're having that conversation with the Lord. I hope it's an honest conversation because you have peace and you have life 
The ability to enjoy it in a fallen world the, the, it is dependent upon so many things. But that is the offer of faith in Jesus, is to flourish here towards God and neighbor and to receive peace in your heart. Because he dwells in us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Paul's saying that declaratively. He expects that to encourage any follower of Christ. And then, as a responsible preacher, he mentions that he doesn't know everyone in the book of Romans in this way. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, this, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8 is a master class in the Holy Spirit. Not in who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God. But in what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit comes up 21 times in Romans 8 and only twice is it not a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Part of the Trinity. Those of you that just thought of that metaphor, put that out of your mind. It's way bigger and more glorious and harder to be grasped by than that metaphor for the Trinity. We accept and are grasped by and continue to think through God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. What's more important, according to the Scriptures, than that is knowing what the Spirit does. Read Romans 8 slowly. Ask God to enliven your mind and your eyes and your heart. And then read it quickly. And then sit with someone and go through it and converse about it. Because knowing what the Spirit does will assure our hearts, which is the, domin the umbrella under which all that the Spirit does comes under is assure our hearts that Jesus is ours and we are his forever. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. What does that mean? It means you actually can be content in all circumstances. I'm borrowing Philippians 4 to help us understand Romans 8. It means that you have the wisdom both of the indwelling Holy Spirit and of all the scriptures, not my notes, but the Bible, to worship God and to do life and friendship and parenting in your vocation. It means that you get to treat God as he deserves to be treated by being God. It means that you look at others not as something to use or be afraid of, but as someone made in the image of God. You're led towards friendship with them. It means maybe you'll start talking to yourself the way God describes you. People tell me all the time about God calling them names to get their attention. Listen to me. God does not need to use any negative language to get your attention. He's God. If you need to use negative language to motivate yourself, that's fine. That's not him. What does he call you? Just a few verses later, heir, beloved, daughter, son, elsewhere, saint. The Spirit of God inside of you means you not only get to worship God, 
It means you not only are guided into how to treat your neighbor, you might even learn to treat yourself kindly and thereby perhaps receive some additional life and peace. If I could see inside your head, would I know you're a follower of Christ in the way you talk about yourself to yourself? I think you are. That's why you're here. Why else would you be here on a Sunday morning? I think you know that there's life and peace and you want to experience it more deeply. And the most encouraging thing I can tell you is the Holy Spirit will do that because that's what he does and who he is. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that you have pursued us in love, that you sent your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh in order that we might be made right with you. Would you even now set our minds on the things of the Spirit that we might breathe in and experience in our minds and hearts and imagination and will and actions life in the Spirit. Father, for many of us, this is a joyful time. Draw near and assure us of your love. And for many of us, this season is challenging. Draw near to us and assure us of your love. Amen.